Good morning. Today's text is Romans 6, 6 through 14. It's on page 942 of the Pew Bible. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin would be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not, therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. I hope that you are prayed up and ready to hear from God's word. And if not, I want you to know I've been praying for you this week. As many of you have noticed, the, the world's attention has been glued to Russia's invasion of Ukraine over this last week, as we recently prayed about. Now, war in Europe is terrifying stuff. And please, I, I want to encourage you, continue to pray for that nation and for our Christian brothers and sisters who are there. They need your prayers. Now, as I've been reading, I've been following and tracking what's been going on, as I'm sure you have, and there was this one of many stories that caught my attention about this little island, a disputed territory called Snake Island, where Russians uh, early on came and approached this island. And on this island, there were 13 men. They were border guards who were meant to save and, and protect this island. Uh, they're from Ukraine. And as Russia approached, they sent a message and said, we're about to blow you up. Uh, we want to encourage you. The, the best thing in your interest right now is to lay down your weapons or be bombed. The Ukrainians responded defiantly. And they said, I'm paragraphing, I'm paraphrasing and, and editing this in a pastor's version. No way. <laughs> now the original reports were that these Ukrainians were then killed. Now there have been some reports that perhaps they were taken as hostages by force. But these soldiers, when they are communicating with this kind of dogmatic conviction with the bombs aimed at their heads really gives us a sense that they would rather die than to return to the tyrannical rule of a cruel dictator. Now, we could talk about politics later, but that was at least part of, it seems, what was going through their minds, if we can read their minds. This really reminds me a lot of the argument that we're going to be reading about in Paul this morning. We're in Romans, Romans 6, verses 6 to 4. And just to catch you up to speed, if you're just joining us, you'll remember that Romans 5 to 8, they are some of the most hopeful chapters in all of the Bible. They are telling us about the new reality that we are living in as believers. Paul's been preaching the gospel for 25 years at this point as he's writing this to the Romans, and he can anticipate with a, a kind of precision, the kind of questions that Christians might have 
the kinds of ways they might misunderstand him as he's communicating his gospel. And so you'll remember at the end of Romans chapter 5, verses 20 to 21, he, asks, he, he makes this statement, this beautiful statement, that where sin increased, grace super increased. And then as he starts chapter 6, he anticipates a question that some might have. He says, what should we say then? Should we sin all the more that grace may abound? And his response is quickly no. And then in the rest of the verses, verses 2 to 14, he's explaining what he means by the fact that we should not sin anymore. Grace reigns, but we should not sin. In fact, this question, are we to continue to sin that grace may abound, really is almost like a person who is asking us more questions as we go. Asking us questions like, if God is glorified by giving grace to sinners, then does God get more glory when we sin? Or should we presume on God's grace to justify our sin? And if God's grace covers all of our sins, do we really need to work so hard at living a godly life? Because it's hard to live a godly life, isn't it? And so maybe you're thinking like, maybe I should just continue in my sin and just keep on reaping more and more grace to the end of the glory of God. Does obedience matter if we are living under the reign of grace, brothers and sisters? That's a question we still need to answer today. Well, I would say that what Paul wants to get at here is answering the question of what is the Christian's posture towards sin as they live under the reign of grace. What is our posture towards it? How should we look to it? Is it a big deal? Is it not? Well, in Romans 6, 6 to 14, Paul tells the story of two realms or domains. He has this picture of these, these two realms or domains that we live in. And, and what he is saying is, is that we either live in the domain of sin and death or we live in the domain of grace. They are two separate places, two different zip codes. You either live in one or the other. Now, our big idea this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. The reign of grace both promises and demands sanctification. The reign of grace both promises and demands sanctification. And I hope that becomes more clear as we go through our text this morning. But notice first, in verses 6 to 10, we know, Christian, we know that we were crucified with Christ and that we live with him. That's what he wants us to know in verses 6 to 10. Now, you'll remember that Paul has just been talking about baptism as a striking event in one's life that marks publicly one's union with Christ. And he says this is uh, often accompanied, it is uh, always by someone who has put their faith in Christ. They are following him, they are living with him, they have died with him, they have been raised with him. And as he's moving on from that, he still has that in view as he says, there are two things that I think every Christian should know, every Christian does know. And he reminds them of those things. You'll notice in verses 6 to 7, he reminds them of the first thing. That is that we know that our old man died with Christ to sin. Now, as we move through these two things we know, I just want to give us a quick reminder. As he's going through these, don't miss this. He's not asking them to do anything yet. He's not there. In fact, simply what he's doing here is reminding them of the truths of the gospel. 
He, he wants to remind them of what the gospel of Jesus Christ means for them individually and collective as the people of God. Now that's something I know that I need this morning. I need to be reminded of the gospel. You, brothers and sisters, you, you need to be reminded of the gospel. Well, first thing we know is this, that our old man died with Christ to sin. Now, look at what Paul says in verse 6. Look there with me again. He says this in Romans 6, 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, I know this is an interesting time to bring this up, this question, but I'm, I'm just curious if any of you are a fan of Elmo from Sesame Street. Anybody? Nobody wants to admit it. Well, I grew up, Elmo was one of my favorite Sesame Street characters. My, my little brother actually had a, a doll of Elmo, and when you would push a button, he would start vibrating and saying, Elmo loves you. Now, the interesting thing is, is that part of what makes Elmo Elmo is that Elmo always speaks in the third person. So in other words, he speaks of himself as though he's someone else. And when I look at our verses this morning, it seems that Paul is doing something similar as he's speaking about himself and other Christians. He is speaking of them as our old self or our old man, as though he's reminiscing about this old acquaintance a different person other than himself. Every person we know according to the scriptures is born in Adam. This old self speaks of that person, you and me, humanity, born in Adam, living under the reign of sin and death prior to us putting our faith in Christ. And not only do we find that we could sin in Adam, we're also told that we could not not sin because of the sin nature that we inherited. Now, Paul's not talking about the old self as someone else to emphasize. Uh, <clears throat> Paul's actually talking about the old self here as someone else with a specific purpose. He is trying to emphasize for Christians in Rome that there is a decisive change that has occurred in their lives. They are those who have been crucified with Christ, that old self, was crucified with him. Now, we've already seen that those who put their faith in Jesus trust that he died on the cross for their sins. And they actually, as John Murray describes it, they have taken possession of property in Christ. There is a real meaningful union between the believer and Jesus. And Paul says when Jesus' hands and feet were nailed to that tree at Calvary, he so represented us that his death to sin was our death to sin. What changed when we put our faith in Christ is represented by baptism. Our death to sin, our living to God. And Paul explains God's purpose for that. Uh, notice that he says there, it was in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, the body of sin has been taken in a number of different ways, but I think that it means either the, the physical body is dominated by sin, those, those desires that, that drive us apart from Christ, or the human person under the control of sin. 
I think this is really one of those examples of a part that represents the whole. He's not emphasizing the fact that outside of Christ, we are living in response to our immediate needs, almost like animals. We're, we're not living as those created in the image of God with a vision of the glory that we've been made for. We are living just really for the things that are before us. He's, he's not not saying that. But the body of sin really likely, I think, represents the whole person, our mind, our wills, the things that we want, the, the emotions that we have, either rightly or wrongly, about this life and our body, all under the reign of sin. Now, the wording, the body of sin, might, might be brought to nothing. I think that we might take that the wrong way, and it could be dangerous. Here's what I mean. As you read that, you, you might think that Paul's saying that if you put your faith in Jesus, you not only don't sin anymore, you don't even struggle with sinful desires, right? Like somebody might read this and think, the person that has had the true conversion experience is the person who is absolutely new and sins no more. They don't struggle with it. Now, if you're a perfectionist by nature, or you're prone to self-doubt, not necessarily the same person, that kind of an expectation can leave you feeling helpless. See, Paul, I think here in these verses, though, he wants us to feel helpless to save ourselves, but he never wants the good news of Christ's work for you on the cross to leave you feeling hopeless. So I don't, I don't think that that's what he's saying. No, I understand Paul to be saying that the power of the cross rendered powerless our body of sin, as, as the Christian Standard Bible translated. It's not that we no longer experience any struggles with sin. It's that it has rendered it powerless, and that's the kind of power that we give to it. See, Jesus went to the cross to save us from being enslaved to sin. That's what Paul says in verse 6. And notice what he grounds us in in verse 7. He says, he grounds us in the fact that for one who has died has been set free from sin. The one who has died is the one who put their faith in Jesus Christ on the cross. We died with him there. And Paul says that person has been set free from the tyrannical reign of sin. Now I'm borrowing and, and editing here a little bit from an image that Martin Lloyd-Jones gives. But imagine that the entire world is really made up of two kingdoms with two separate zip codes. And they are closed off from one another by a, a giant inescapable wall that reaches to the heavens. Can't dig under it, okay? I know some cheaters are thinking, I'd dig under it. You can't dig under it in this illustration. It, it has no gates. And every human is born into one of those kingdoms, into Adam, where sin rules. Sin is a tyrannical dictator where there's only growing hunger, darkness, selfishness, sorrow, and death. It's not a good place. But when one puts their faith in Christ, it's as though God reaches down and lifts up and places us into another kingdom, the kingdom where grace reigns, the kingdom of Christ. It is a land of peace with God, forgiveness, for others, a place of righteousness and joy and eternal life. It's a beautiful place. And when one puts their faith in Christ, God takes them and transports this to this new place. Now don't miss this. Paul's not telling Christians what to do. 
He's simply reminding them of who they are in Christ. He's reminding you and me who we are in Christ. You're not the old you. You're not that old man, that old woman that Paul is speaking to. That person, that man was crucified with Christ. Long gone, distant memory. You live a new reality. You really are new. Are y'all feeling me? You're new. Now I'm borrowing and adding that from Martin Lloyd-Jones, but that gives us, I think, a clear image of the nature of where we are. And I don't miss this. Paul is not calling you to radical Christianity here. Now, some of you are thinking like, man, Romans is the radical Christian book. That's why I don't usually read that. Like, it's hard. No, for, for Paul, this is basic, ordinary Christianity. This is what it means to be a, a normal believer. He's reminding Christians of the radical change of identity that's been brought about for you through the work of Christ at the cross. Now, let's make sure we understand what Paul doesn't say here, because I know some of you are like, man, this is really feeling weighty for me. I'm feeling a little bit hopeless. I thought you said this was a hopeful section of Romans. Well, here's what it doesn't mean. Being free from slavery to sin does not mean that Christians don't sin. In fact, the apostle John in 1 John 1, 8 to 9 says, if you say that you have not sinned, you're a liar. And then in verse 9, he goes on to give hope. He says, if we confess our sins, he being God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Being free from slavery to sin also doesn't mean that you don't sometimes feel like sin has a stronger grip on you than Christ does. I hope that's not the case for you, but it doesn't mean that that's an impossibility. I don't know who needs, who needs to hear this this morning, but if you feel enslaved to sin, you're feeling enslaved to pornography, adultery, you're feeling enslaved to addiction to, to substances, you feel enslaved to a, a sense of bitterness towards God for the status of your life or towards others. You're, you're bitter towards others in a way that you feel like you can't just dislodge that bitterness. Maybe you're struggling to, to trust God in the face of chronic illness, and you are tempted in those moments to actually think to yourself that this sin has a stronger hold on me than Christ does. Well, hear Paul's words. The cross freed you from the power of sin. Y'all hearing me? The cross freed you from the power of sin. Greater is he that's in you than he is in the world. We need to trust that. That is something that we need to remind ourselves of daily. That is good news gospel that changes our lives. But notice also, Paul's not explicitly telling them not to sin yet. He's just simply reminding them about the old self. That's who you were, not who you are in Christ. And he also reminds them of a second aspect of the gospel that Christians know. He says, we know that we live with Christ in verses 8 to 10. Now, <clears throat> you'll remember as we've been traveling through Romans that, that sin and death are actually like co-regents. They rule together in this realm of Adam. And you'll notice here that Jesus defeated them both with one stroke. He's bringing death into the picture now. Now look with me at verses 8 to 10 at, at what he says. He says this. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now in verse 8, Paul is really highlighting the necessary consequence of us dying with Christ by faith. It is that we will live with him. Now you'll notice that he uses the future there, and that could mean a couple of different things. One is it could be an actual future, that he is speaking about the fact that someday when Jesus comes back and we die, we will be with Jesus. I think that's at least true. But it could also be a, a logical future, talking about the fact that for those who have died with Christ, putting their faith in him, then they will logically also know that they will live with him. And that eternal life starts in this very moment. I think that actually might be more what's going on. I take it that Paul seems to have here in these verses a, a sort of view to an already not yet type of reality. You know what I'm talking about? He's saying there's a sense in which we are already in Christ living new, experiencing newness of life even now, but only in part because there's a not yet aspect that we are looking forward to, the fullness of life that is going to be with Christ when he comes back and we are with him living in the new heavens and the new earth forever. See, eternal life has already invaded the present reality of the believer. We are not just waiting for eternal life to show up as though we have no sense of these things. Did you catch what Paul says Christians know about the resurrected Christ? He will never die again. Kind of an important point. Others like Lazarus died. Jesus raised him from the dead. But then he died again. It didn't really fix the problem, but Jesus' death did something new and different. It defeated death. See, the eternal Son of God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And he went and died in our place to save us from the tyrannical rule of sin and death. And his resurrection proclaims and declares that Jesus lives forevermore because death no longer reigns over him. Death no longer reigns over those who have put their faith in him. That's why verse 10 says, Jesus died to sin. What's interesting is this is also said earlier in Romans about sinners who need to be saved from sin's dominion. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not the same as us. We just said he's the eternal son of God. But also, Jesus, when he went to the cross, didn't take his sins to the cross. No, we, we find that Jesus was perfectly righteous in every way. He never sinned in thought and desire an action or deed. Even when he was tempted, he, he did not sin. But he bore our sins when he went to the cross. As though they were his to satisfy God's just wrath and to save us from that tyrannical dictator's sin and his co-regent death. And resurrection heralds the good news that Jesus defeated sin and death at the cross. That's what it means when Jesus, we are told, died once for all. In fact, one author speaking about this translated it as an altogether decisive and un, 
unprecedented, unrepeatable event. Jesus died for our sins once for all, past, present, and future. Now, if you were to go to church in some churches, some Roman Catholic churches around here, uh, you would likely take communion if you were not evangelical, right? And, and what they understand by their communion is that they are actually re-sacrificing. The priest is re-sacrificing Christ to cover your sins from the past week or months so that again and again you need to come and re-experience the death of Christ to cover those sins. That's not the way the Bible talks about Jesus. Jesus died once for all. When he died on that cross and he was raised from the dead, the only image that I can give you that helps declare what he has done with regard to sin is Jesus dropped the mic. He said, it is finished. Not mostly finished, almost finished, but done. That's what Christ did at the cross. That gives us a radical view of, of the nature of how our reality has been shaped and changed because of what he has done. The cross of Christ dealt a death blow to sin and death on our behalf. See, Christians, we know that we are living in already not yet tension of eternal life in Christ. Now, I just want to pause for a minute and give you some reminders about the reality that a healthy Christian who, who is living well is holding on both to that already nature of what Jesus has done as well as the not, as the not yet. It's like you've got, you've got to take a hold of both reins or you're going to fall off into a ditch somewhere. So let me give you an example. I could give you a ton, but I've just got a, a couple real quick to help you understand what I mean. And I think that hopefully you'll be able to start processing your life in, in this category. Am I right now sad or disappointed because I am too much emphasizing the not yet and not paying enough attention to the already, or maybe vice versa? So let me give you an example. For one, uh, you can fall into the ditch of too much of the already expectations of eternal life. If you have too high an expectation of yourself or of others. Do you know what I'm talking about? You are a perfectionist with yourself. Anything less, it's a zero-sum game, you quit. If someone else doesn't measure up to your standards. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't places where people obviously need to repent. We all have ways that we need to repent. But if someone is not where you think they should be, then you give up on them. I give up when I fail to achieve perfection in my life becoming hopeless. Or if another Christian doesn't meet my standards of holiness, I refuse to forgive them because I've given up on the future hope of glory. For them, when Jesus returns, and the reality that transformation is truly happening in my life. God is keeping his promise to finish the work that he has begun in me. It's just happening at one glory click to the next rather than 10 like I want. Maybe I can also fall into the other ditch, the ditch of too much not yet when I'm thinking about eternal life. Have you ever heard someone justify their sins or the sins of someone else with the phrase, you know, we're just all sinners and all? Man, I have heard congressmen say that. I've heard all kinds of people sort of lean into, well, we're just all sinners and all, to kind of explain away sin. Now, I think the logic goes something like this. There are a lot of permutations of it, but maybe here's one. 
that we're all sinners sitting in a waiting room. All of us just guilty, waiting for Jesus to get back and fix everything, and we don't really have a role in living for God today. Like we have no responsibility. He's going to come back. That's his job. My job is kind of just to enjoy myself until he gets back. I think that's putting too much weight in the future of eternal life and not trusting the eternal life that really has invaded our lives even now. Another example of a little too much attention to the not yet might be driving a motorcycle without a helmet. I'm just going to leave that there. But in God's economy, the indicatives of the gospel, that is, what's true for those united by faith to Christ, precedes the imperatives of the gospel, what God commands believers to do in Christ. Now, you'll remember that Paul just laid out the indicatives of the gospel. And now in verses 11 to 14, he's making a turn and he's saying, and here's how we should live in response to this good news of what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ means for us. Don't miss this. Paul says the reign of grace promises and demands that we will be sanctified, that we will be made righteous and holy. Now, you'll notice that Paul speaks of this reign of grace in verse 14. Love that image. That's the kingdom that we want to live in. That's the kingdom that those in Christ do live in, that we enjoy. And he calls us to live under the power of grace, not the power of sin and death. Now, the grace of justification by faith alone is not to be used to justify sin, but instead, he sees grace. And hear me, grace is not to like make it seem like sin's not a big deal. It can comfort us when we are seeking to run from sin and we fear that we have sinned against God. But grace also is meant to be a kind of engine and power that leads us to want to put sin to death and to actively pursue it. Notice here that he tells us that, that we are called to sanctification. Now, verse 11, he begins by telling us that sanctification begins with continuously reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ. It begins with continually reminding us of ourselves and who we are in Christ. Notice that he says in verse 11 this. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, what, what is consider? Consider is a, a word that, that describes thinking, meditating, pondering, setting your heart on. And it's in the present tense, which means it has this idea of an action that is happening right now without a view towards its ending. And so we are to be in the process as Christians of continually thinking about, meditating over who we are in Christ. This is a beautiful picture. All of us are working to become more of what God wants us to be. But that begins with a heart that is continuously considering who Christ is. Do you want to know who you were made to be? Do you want to know what is right for you in your life? How you are to live in such a way that you flourish to the glory of God? Spend a lot of time gazing at Jesus. A lot of time looking to him in his word. Praying and asking that he would help you to not only see the glorious things of him that are in his word, but that you would actually be able to spiritually taste and value them 
deep in your soul. That's what it means to, to more and more obey Jesus. It begins with what is going on in our hearts and our minds and our thoughts? What are the meditations that are going on as we are quiet and sitting, looking at a lake and ducks? Are we turning our attention towards Christ? Uh, Robert Murray McChain, you've probably heard him. He's that ninth, 19th century Scottish pastor. He was the one, he is the one that's famous for his Bible reading plan. A lot of uh, you probably go through that. Uh, many read that, use that, still profit from it. He's a man who was saturated with the scriptures, and he wrote a letter to his friend George Shaw. And in that letter, he was expressing his love for Christ, and he says this, he says this to Robert, I mean to George, George Shaw, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with heart-ravishing senses of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly, for the world, for Satan, or for the flesh. What is your heart full of this morning? Are you filling those chambers up with the glories and excellencies of Christ or Netflix reruns? See, Robert McChain tells his friend that seeking to put sin to death and live unto God is this process of looking at yourself, evaluating yourself spiritually, but he says it begins with first taking 10 looks at Christ if you want any hope of change. See, Christ is the last Adam. He is the goal of our sanctification, what we are being transformed into. We look to our Bibles to discover how all the scriptures point to him. And we learn who we are and who we're supposed to be in him. Now, I know that a lot of you are meeting with others in one-to-one -one discipleship. Just another way that you can help your heart think about the scriptures and help others think about the scriptures. And uh, we have pictures of those before the service and that kind of thing. If you haven't got your pictures in, get them in before next week. That's a plug. But the reason that we're doing that is because we want for you to fill up the chambers of your heart with the word of God, to be known, to be known in the way that you're thinking about the scriptures and to have someone encourage you. Why? Because to come more and more into the image of Christ is a community project. We need brothers and sisters in Christ to help us see our blind spots and to help us see more of Christ so that we might be transformed. It begins with how we think. Second, sanctification promises and demands mortification. Verses 12 to 13a. Look at verse 12 with me. Hear what he says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life, from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, don't miss this. If you read verse 12, 
Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Apart from verses 6 to 10 before, that describe your new identity in Christ, who you are in him, that you are no longer that old self, you're going to feel defeated and overwhelmed. See, God's grace to us in Christ is meant to posture Christians against sin, and it promises us victory. Do do you see that? If you are not in Christ and you haven't experienced the glories of the gospel, being crucified with Christ to sin and being raised with him to newness of life, then this sort of self-help program of trying to please God through your obedience, it's not going to work. We need God's grace in the gospel to posture us towards against sin and to promise us that we really can have victory. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't take hard prayer for us to be sanctified. I'm not saying that it doesn't take humbling confession, faithful scripture reading, and worshiping with your local church. There's just a few things that it takes to kill sin. But don't miss the promise in this. Do you see it? This is an encouraging text. Paul says, don't let sin reign because sin no longer has power over those in Christ. If you want to know how to lay the ax to the root of sin in your life, you need to know his devices. They still, sin, it still comes to taunt believers like we're that old self with truths that no longer apply to us. You know what I'm talking about? You have sin speaking in your ear, trying to cause you to doubt who you are now in Christ, still talking to you like you're that old guy, that that nothing significant has actually changed in your life, that you haven't actually received the Holy Spirit, that you actually can't change. I hear it. Sin, it's, it's quacking in my ear. It says, I can't not not sin, right? That's too many nots. I can't not sin. Means I I can only sin. We're powerless, sin would say, under its reign. Don't you remember the dominance that I have in your life? It's taunting us. And here's the deal. That used to be true. That was true of the old you, but it's not true of the new. That's why it sounds somewhat true. Sin, it comes and it tells you that you can, that it can give you more joy and happiness than obedience to Christ. Or that that obedience is too hard and that we can't be obedient to Jesus. We're we're powerless. Or that a moment of fleeting pleasure is worth an eternity of pleasure with God. That's how we used to think. We used to think that that was true. Yeah, I'll give all of eternity and the glory of God for just this one moment of sin. It feels like a good exchange in the moment. But that's not the new you. See, sin hits us at every point. It hits it as our very passions and desires. And it says, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. It's also a song by Sheryl Crow. It tells you you were born this way, so it's really God that's made you this way, and he doesn't make mistakes. That's what Lady Gaga says. And the old you took the bait and sang along. But let me remind you right now, the new you, that where grace reigns, God's people go to war to kill sin, trusting in the promises of God. 
Paul says grace is not a justification for sin. It's a call to arms against the old tyrannical ruler that comes with a, a promise of victory against sin and death. Now, sanctification also promises and demands vivification. Now, that's another big word. We're learning lots of big words today. That just means to vivify or to live unto God. And notice what he says in verse, the last part of verse 13. He tells us that sanctification promises and demands this. He says this, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. See, vivification, it, it speaks of intentionally pursuing newness of life and the likeness of Christ. That's what it means to live unto God. I want to be more like Christ. He is the human of humans. He is what we should have been, but we're not. He is what we will be more like when we find the consummation of his return. We seek to become more of what we are in Christ, so to speak. Become what you are. See, Paul will clarify the role of the Holy Spirit in helping the believer live unto God in Romans 8. But for now, hear the good news. Here's the good news. We are alive with Christ and live to God and can please God in Christ. You might be thinking today that God is most satisfied with you when you are most discouraged with him. You might think that it's impossible to please God, so why try? Catch this, in Christ, we can please God in ways that don't just last today, but forever. Everything now matters in Christ. Do you see that? Outside of Christ, doesn't matter. It's all passing away. In Christ, we live forever with God. I visited a brother and his wife just this last week who got some tough news concerning cancer. He's in a lot of pain. And at one point, he even said that he's, he's praying for Hezekiah's 15 years, but Doctors seem to think it might be a year. We don't know. His days are in the Lord's hands. But he spent an hour and a half talking about his love for Christ and his hope in the gospel and began to, to muse on how do people face this kind of news apart from Christ? I mean, I've got eternal life. This is the basement, not the ceiling. I'm going to see Jesus but what do others do if they don't have this Christ, this hope? And I just sat there and I was thinking, these are the sermons that you need to hear. Visit your brothers and sisters in Christ that are sick, that are aging. Hear their confidence in Jesus. You can hear as he's speaking his conviction in the gospel. He even made this comment, maybe I'll give up in the end. He said, like, but only by God's grace I won't. There's no way. And you can hear a sin appealing in those moments of sickness to the old man saying, what's the point? Like, you're facing death and you're spending so much time going through the scriptures. Like this brother who said he was studying the gospels and he just wanted to see Jesus. And he was just taking note as he went through of the nature of who Christ is. And he said, that's what I want to fill my heart with in these days, whether they're my last or whether I have more. And you might be thinking, uh, sins, speaking to that old man, what's the point of studying the scriptures? Like, either you, you've sort of achieved it at this point or not. But this brother, as he's visibly in pain, said, the point of all of this, this world, this life, is the glory of God. I don't know how people face these kinds of news without the promise of eternal life in Christ. 
See, this brother is confident that he will be healed, if not today, but on the last day. A new body is coming. And he continues to contemplate the glorious work of Christ. Why? Verse 14. Because grace reigns in the Christian's life. You hear me? Grace reigns in the Christian's life. What a glorious truth. He says this, for sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under the law, but under grace. Notice verse 14. It it begins with this beautiful promise. Don't miss it. He is giving us a beautiful promise of God's grace. And it's grounding, that four is grounding all of those commands in the grace of God and this promise that is given to us. He says, we will have victory over sin. We will. Because we are no longer under Mosaic law that condemns us. No, Christians, they're under something else. We're under the reign of grace and the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that we know that We are called to obedience of Christ. We are righteous in Christ. We are becoming what he has made us to be. And he will finish what he has started. Jesus Christ has delivered us from sin and death. We're not under their power anymore. Now, a few closing quick applications first. When sin sends the submarine of sexual temptation, of cheating on a test at school, of stealing from work, and it is calling you to an all-out surrender. You can tell them, we'd rather die than to go back to the, the territory of sin. We remember our old self. That ain't the life. We want Christ. And we know that there is more that is yet to come. That's what we long for. Not only that, that means that we need to spend less time frivolously. Struggle. Frivolously. Frivolous spending time. God's grace reigns over our minds and our bodies. That means that everything that we do, it matters in Christ. I'm not saying you can't relax, can't have fun, can't enjoy things, but making sure that we understand that every moment matters because of what Christ has done at the cross and in his resurrection. There's no space. We don't want to give space to sin in our lives. Hanging out on websites. Not filling ourselves with God's word. Just being kind of random and not conscientious about what we're doing. We need to make sure that we are taking our minds and focusing them towards Christ. We also know that we are not yet what we shall be, brothers and sisters. If you're discouraged this morning by the fight of sin, be reminded that we are not yet what we shall be. I'm reminded of that great quote by John Newton, who's a hymn writer, pastor. He is a former slave runner. He was a wicked man and Christ saved and redeemed him. And he became a pastor who fought for freedom, for freedom of others, and for freedom in the gospel. And John Newton, after changing his life, is famously quoted as saying, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. Our futures are incredibly bright, and sin and death cannot steal that from us. If you're not a Christian here this morning, let me just encourage you, friend. Know that Jesus came to rescue you from the reign of sin and death. If you put your faith in Christ, 
and his death for you and his resurrection, that means that your reality is different and new. He will change you, your wants, your desires, your future forever. Put your faith in Christ today and be made new. He is the only good king who promises life, not death, and righteousness, not sin, not just today or next week, but forever. That's the good news of the gospel for you. So if you have not done this, put your faith in Christ and talk to me before you leave. I would love nothing more than to talk to you about how you can move in to the place of Christ where there is life and there is righteousness forevermore. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you praising you that you have sent your son who was crucified for us, that we were crucified with him and that you have raised us to newness of life. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who have become lax, who have felt self-defeated or as though sin has greater power over them than your son Christ does, than the Holy Spirit does. Lord, I pray that you would just give them a confidence, a fresh confidence in you, that, that you are worth so much more than anything that sin can offer them. Father, for those facing death, I pray that you would continue to draw their attention towards their hope that is in Christ. And Father, we are jealous for the fact that they will be with you sooner than we will. And Lord, for those who are here who do not know you, we pray, Father, that they would not leave without putting their faith in you, being rescued from death and your wrath. It's in your name we do pray.